All right. Well, welcome to the show today, everybody. Uh, super excited to have Joseph Woodbury, who's the founder and CEO of Neighbor. Uh, welcome to the show, Joseph. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about Neighbor. Uh, how'd you guys get started? People have probably seen uh, you guys out there. You've been growing like crazy, which is amazing. Uh, tell us more about kind of the the origin story and, and what got you to here. Yeah, I think um, we started the same way a lot of good businesses start. I'm sure some of your businesses as well. But my, my co-founder actually had the need himself. Uh, I don't think any of us were trying to start a business. It wasn't on our roadmap or, or kind of a goal for any of us. But my co-founder, um, he had just gotten married. And about a week after he got married, he and his new wife flew down to South America to work for this humanitarian org down in South America. And they needed a place to put their now combined items while they were gone. And they looked into getting a storage unit and had the same experience that I think everyone has when they try to get a storage unit. And that is that all the facilities close by were totally full. So they were going to have to drive to the next city over just to find one with vacancy. And they were going to charge hundreds of dollars a month. And he was like, I don't pay hundreds of dollars a month for anything. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, he, he found a friend that was letting, willing to let him store in his garage and dropped their items off in his friend's garage. And when he got back four months later, he went to pick his items up. And as he's pulling the items out of this garage, he just had the thought, you know, why doesn't everyone do this? Why isn't there? This was such a better experience for me and my wife. I felt a lot more peace of mind storing my items in a nice, clean garage in a neighborhood I trusted. Plus, I saved a bunch of money. There's got to be empty garages or, or space in every neighborhood in the country. Why isn't there some sort of platform or marketplace or directory where you can go like look and see what space is available around you? And, and so the idea for Neighbor was born. He pulled myself and our other co-founder Colton on and uh, we started working on it our senior year of school. Um, our last semester, we all called our full-time jobs and uh, that were lined up for after we graduated and said, hey, we're not going to show up and just did it full time. <laughs> Dude, that's amazing. Uh, that's really incredible. I think that's a, a very common feeling amongst everyone. I've had those moments of putting stuff in storage and you have this little tiny lock and you're like, well, oh, that's that's all that's protecting everything that I own that has value. So, Yeah, a lot of people, uh, well, I was, I was talking to a reporter down in San Diego a month or two ago and I was telling him, you know, we were talking about some of the the safety stats in the storage industry. And I was telling him how, you know, something like one in 10 storage facilities gets broken into every single year because they're, they're very low safety. You know, there's items there. So they're kind of targets uh, for, yeah. for theft. And the reporter was like, oh, you don't need to tell me. I cover like, I cover like the local beat. I do a story once a month on a store, self-storage break-in in San Diego. It's, it's, <laughs> They are not like, great places. I know. Items. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a, I think that's a really great point. So you guys uh, have this idea. What were some of the things that kind of like, I think, I think that's one of the challenges of entrepreneurship, especially as you're, you know, you guys were in school, you hadn't started a company before. What were some of those learnings that you had 
as you start to get going of things that were surprising of like, oh, I didn't think that I would spend this much time doing this, or I didn't think this would be as hard as, uh, as it turned out to be. Yeah. I think the recurring surprise is just like how wrong you are about every assumption you have. Um, like all the things we thought would be, would be issues, uh, have not been issues in the business. Yeah. All, all the things that, you know, some some of the things that, that are challenges we didn't even think about. I'll I'll give an example. I thought if you're starting a marketplace, one of the biggest things to solve for storage would be that if a storage facility you put your items there and they can kind of sit there forever and and the storage facility is never going to kick you out, right? But if you store with a neighbor, that neighbor might move and then your items would need to get transferred and yeah transferred and i was like this is this is the biggest problem to solve in this business and it has not even been an issue like it it, <laughs> it hardly ever occurs that we have to take a renter's items out of a space where they're already at like very rare we have we have active users in ev almost every city in every state in the country at this point and like it's it's not even on the top like ten, you know, twenty list of of things that like people call into customer support about. So like just totally wrong about that assumption. Um, uh, some things on on the flip side is like, you know, you think that, oh, uh, uh, you know, I think everyone goes into a marketplace thinking like, oh, it'll be easy to balance this supply and demand you just get enough demand for the supply and enough supply for the demand and like it is it, it is the classic marketplace story where you spend a lot <laughs> yeah. trying to correctly balance those especially as you scale across the country and yeah. um uh yeah it, the larger you get the more i think it gets pushed to one side right or one side yeah. being lagging in the other side uh, but it, it's it's just a constant thing. Of course, I think a lot of marketplaces they think it's like a uniquely marketplace problem. They're like, oh, only marketplaces deal with this chicken and egg problem. We're so special or unique, and this is like so hard. But I I I've thought several times throughout the course of the business, like pretty much every business deals with this. Like Walmart, uh, they have to have supply on the shelves. If you show up and there's not yeah. there's not an item you're looking for on the shelf, you're not gonna purchase an item. And so like they have the exact same issues. If you look at the supply chain issues that that uh companies are dealing with nationwide, every company is ultimately sourcing a product and selling the product to someone who wants the product. And so I I don't think marketplaces are quite as special as we make them out to be. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's actually a really good point. We've had very uh very similar experiences with our product uh, companies, you know, both as clients, but also with Pillow Cube uh, and Stairslide, we've had tons of issues of, well, we have tons of product. And then all of a sudden you're like, we have no product and everyone wants it. And it's, it's a huge problem. I, I do think that, uh, I think that's a really good point. I, I also think that that's, I love what you said about that assumptions are often wrong. Cause I think that's such a theme of entrepreneurship is so often we sit and spend so much time debating and trying to predict how people feel and what they're going to want 
what are some of the tools that you have used things you've seen have been effective and like my one of my things is always like let's stop talking and just get it in front of people uh what are some of the things that you've found has helped your team do that well we're we're we've uh over the last you know three or four months we've been interviewing for a a VP of marketing position on a leadership team that we just filled. Uh, but I remember talking to to one candidate in particular where they were telling me that at their current, in past orgs, they've had very strong, at past companies, they've been at very strong like A-B testing cultures. And at their current company, their current company just does not have a culture of A-B testing. They don't A-B test anything. They just like, you know, kind of launch and... <laughs> and and I was like, wow. how do you even do that? Because I can't tell you how many times I've been wrong about an A-B test. Yeah. Like, I am yeah. wrong about more than, I, I think I'm I'm worse than a, a flip a coin. You know, I think I'm wrong about like more than half of the A-B tests we run. If we didn't run those, we would be in a very bad spot. Um, so that's one tool that I'd mention is just having a strong, data analytics culture, A-B testing everything, because user preferences are weird. There's one thing I learned in my behavioral economics class uh, in school is that, um, you know, we, we build these all these models that assume humans are rational actors and and humans are not rational actors. Uh, and and they, they have psychological preferences that, that you could never guess through a theoretical or paper exercise. And yeah. so you literally just have to test, test user behavior. Um, and, and remember that, that again, it's, you're not selling to a bunch of robots, you're selling to people and, and people have preferences and you have to build the products towards those preferences, not towards what is necessarily like on paper, you know, should be their preference. Oh, I love that. Is there any that stand out in your mind of A-B tests you did and you were like totally shocked by the results? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> so so some that we've done that we just thought were, were going to be a massive slam dunk that we're not. Uh, we looked at, of course, we look at Airbnb. They're a very similar model to us later stage also have a strong testing culture so we we trust a lot of their assumptions that they make there's they're helping people rent out space in their homes just like we are um, so a lot of corollaries there and we actually share a board member uh, one of our board members sits on the board of airbnb and and so we pass ideas back and forth and and one of the most effective features ever rolled out in fact i think some some people at airbnb would say the most successful feature ever rolled out at airbnb was the instant book feature where oh yeah hosts can sign up um for instant book and then they don't get an opportunity to approve the renter they just trust airbnb and and all renters are auto approved there's no sort of approval process that goes in place um when, i i, I want to say that the story goes the the ceo there brian chesky was very hesitant to roll out that feature uh kind of drug his feet on it but then they rolled it out and it was like it took their you know approval rate from like sub 50 percent to like 75 80 percent it was a huge boon to their business 
sped up conversion through their revenue. The most impactful feature they've ever rolled out. They now push it. You almost can't sign up as a host without opting into Instant Book. It's so <laughs> yeah, yeah, ecosystem. So we're like, okay, this is going to be great for us too, right? We're going to roll out this feature, and so we put a lot of like love and care into building this feature. We spent several months on it. We ship it out, um, and it's it's highly successful. Uh, hosts are adopting it at a high rate, which is what we wanted. Our approval rate is is climbing we, we fortunately start already started out from a much higher spot than i think airbnb did they had a fairly low approval rate so it had a lot of room to grow but uh, even at the the high approval rate we were at instant book was was sending the approval rate higher we're, we're celebrating this is amazing well two three months later it ended up being like the most disastrous feature we've ever rolled out turns out that uh, our users are very different than Airbnb users in that they're very last minute. Storage is a last minute purchase as opposed to travel, which is, you know, you book it a couple months out in advance. You plan yeah. for your storage is very different where you wake up one day and you're like, shoot, I need storage. And people try to move in like 24 hours after they place a reservation, or 48 hours after they place a reservation. And so that conversation that takes place during the approval process is actually a very important conversation. Um, yeah. And that conversation wasn't taking place and people were getting instantly approved and people were showing up to move in with like how having the details worked out and it just wasn't a good experience. So then we were getting all these complaints and it took two months, three months for us to realize that because it took two or three months for those complaints and refunds and all that stuff to start to roll in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we just totally got it wrong and it was a good lesson for us that hey we are building a unique product we need to think about a product we're the first person to build this product and so we need to think yeah. about from first principles not just because it worked on some other platform we can't yeah we can't just duplicate something because it worked on another platform our users are different i love that i think that's an amazing example of it's so logical that that should have worked like yeah. logically as you walked through that it's like oh yeah that like makes perfect sense that uh, you know, Airbnb is a similar, often the same person. Probably you probably have a lot of overlap, and so I think I think that's a great example. That's amazing. It turns out it's it's really, really great to to have that little check in and say, hey, <laughs> yeah, you know, in your space, and I want to move in at two p.m. tomorrow. You're going to be there at two p.m. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. They're like, no, I'm not. Uh, yeah. No, I think that's a really interesting, and it's probably also, there's probably a difference too, because Airbnb is like, like you said, you're booking it way far out and then you're there for like two days. And so that, that, that is different. And they're always probably available if that date's available where storage is probably different. That's really interesting. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about, I mean, you've had an amazing group of investors come in and invest in Neighbor uh like pretty like best of the best of the best uh what have you learned from those groups uh how have you developed that relationship and how have you been surprised by some of that relationship i think that's especially for people who haven't raised money from vcs or from institutional investors that's probably the most gray kind of black area that they're like i don't really know what that's going to be like i've heard horror stories i've heard not horror stories, everything in between. What has that experience been like for you guys? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's been very positive. Um, we, you know, I'll first say like, there's, there's a lot of hype around venture capital and raising money and like, oh, you raise these big rounds and like a celebration. We, we try to tell our, our team a few things um, that kind of go against the, the common understanding. First is uh, raising money is not a positive. It's a, it's, it's dilution, right? Like best case scenario, we never have to raise another dollar again. And we're yeah. able to achieve the same growth potential. You only raise money because you need it to achieve some goal, but you're selling part of the company and that affects everyone yeah. from leadership all the way to, to every employee. The second thing we talk about a lot is, is like, we don't, we don't, there's no value in kingdom building, you know, like some people derive value from like, oh, I'm going to hire and have a team of 25 people underneath me. And we believe strongly that uh, we absolutely should hire if that person is going to incrementally drive more value, right? But best case scenario, if we can build a $50 billion company with 50 people, great. There's more <laughs> to go around for those 50 people, right? We'll just distribute that amongst the employees. And so, and so the, you know, people can derive satisfaction from these kind of vanity metrics of like, oh, we raised $50 million. Uh, that, that doesn't mean anything other than you had to sell $50 million worth of your company in order to achieve where you're going. Oh, we have 2,000 employees. Well, that doesn't really mean anything other than it takes 2,000 employees to offer your service. Um, so that's the first thing, like, if you can build a $50 billion business with 50 employees and never raise a dime, do it. But our experience with venture capital has been extremely positive. Uh, I think partly due to the investors we've had come on board. They're very much collaborators, operator backgrounds. We, we brought, you mentioned we have some big names, brought in Andreessen Horowitz. It was the first time they'd ever made lead around in Utah. So that was exciting to get them some Utah exposure. But we didn't go after Andreessen for Andreessen, the, like the name. That's not why we wanted to bring yeah. them on. We wanted to bring them on for a specific partner, who, who a guy named Jeff Jordan, who as a company out of Utah, most of our investors were SaaS investors. We wanted to bring in some marketplace expertise. And Jeff is kind of known as the best marketplace investor in the world. And not just as an investor, but as an operator. He built eBay.com. He managed all of eBay North America from like 99 to 2005. Uh, so basically the early startup years of eBay. Very impressive. Yeah. Uh, he When they bought PayPal, he took over and he was president of PayPal. Um, then he was CEO of OpenTable and took them public. Then uh, uh, he co-founded a company called Wealthfront and then became an investor at Andreessen and his first year at Andreessen, he invested in this tiny company that no one ever heard of called Airbnb, uh, where he still sits on the board today. He's on the board of Instacart. He's on the board of Pinterest, OfferUp, uh, Lime Scooters, kind of all the marketplaces. He's he's a very marketplace yeah. investor. And so, so that's why we went after Andreessen. It's really not for the brand name. It was to bring in someone 
to sit on our team who's got an operator background and can speak to the problems that we're going to face and help us work through them and help us solve them. And each partner that we've added, we've tried to do that. Our next round we raised from a group called Fifth Wall. We're, we're a property marketplace, so we'd already gotten the best marketplace investor. We wanted to get the best prop tech investor. And so Fifth Wall is kind of known as the top prop tech fund. And we brought in a great partner who just knows the real estate space. Um, on the commercial side of our business, uh, a lot of the commercial partners that we work with, Fifth Wall introduced us to those partners. And so investors can be very value add in the right circumstances. Um, uh, and and that's that's been our experience. And I'd say our investors are also quite quite hands off. I think there's a stereotype of like you bring in investors. I think most people are thinking in more of like private equity stage investors where they come in, they yeah. like commandeer the company and they make decisions. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we we have to like beg our investors to like to like help us make decisions. We're like, please have a strong opinion on this because we want your opinion because you guys are really smart. Because their approach is generally to to just trust us to manage it, um, in, unless we we very strongly ask them to weigh in. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I, I think that's such a great mentality, both around why you raise money and very healthy. Uh, it's something that I kind of personally have taken on as my like little mini econ research project of, uh, you know, so much has improved from a technology standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint. And yet most of the time we're still running businesses where kind of the employee to revenue ratio really when adjusted for in or, you know, inflation really hasn't changed a whole lot in the last 40 years which is pretty wild considering we've invented email and cell phones and all of these things that make running a business so much more efficient. And yet we're still kind of, like you said, hiring thousands of people and kind of using that as a, uh, as kind of like credibility, like, Oh, I have 4,000 employees. And so I think that's a super wise thing. And then I love your approach with investors. I think that's really smart that, uh, it's not just about getting the big names. I think that's probably something sometimes people, people think would be, oh, it'd be such an amazing thing to have, you know, Andreessen. But if Andreessen's not bringing the expertise you need, uh, being more strategic, super smart. That's awesome. Well, we've, we've kind of, uh, it's time has flown by as, uh, as we wrap up, what would you ask people to go do? What's, uh, you know, if someone's out listening, what would uh, your request be? I mean, ultimately our, our mission is to, bring neighbors together. So like, regardless, I'd say of whether you use our platform or not, we, we provide uh, assistance there, but I'd just say like, help a neighbor out, right? Do, do yeah. something for a neighbor, get to know a neighbor. I, I fundamentally believe um, we kind of have two big problems to solve in our society today. And one of which we're not qualified to solve at all, which is like, we need some sort of we need some sort of unlimited energy source that's that's clean and and uh, we can rely on. I'll let the the, the nuclear people figure that out. Um, <laughs> yeah, like that that would solve a lot of problems if we just had some unlimited, like completely free energy source. The second thing, though, that I think we need is just for society to work right. And yeah, and I think I think 
as things have gone more digital uh, and as we've onboarded to social media, we know people around us less. And it's a lot easier to hate people that you don't know uh, than it is uh, to hate people that you know. You can argue online all day long, but if you sit those two people in a room together physically um, uh, in the same room, they're gonna, they may still disagree, but they're going to be a lot nicer about it. And so we're trying to bring back that nuclear community that used to exist where everyone knew their neighbors, they relied on neighbors for their services, uh, and we're trying to do it in a transactional way where we can break down those barriers because people don't like to talk to their neighbors because it's awkward. It becomes yeah. a lot less awkward if you connect it on a platform and you're you're paying each other. It actually unlocks a lot of niceness. Like I'm paying you so we can talk, we can chat, we can get to know each other. This isn't weird that I came over to your house. And so I, I just say even outside of our platform, uh, find a neighbor, figure out what you can do for them and, and make a connection because that if if every neighborhood took care of every neighborhood, then we wouldn't need anything else, right? Everybody would be taken care yeah. of. We wouldn't need any programs or, or anything else. We just need to do it at the neighborhood level. I think that's a great message. And I 100% agree. I think you go, go sit down with someone who you disagree with and you'll actually find way more common ground than you'll actually find disagreement. I think inherently all of us actually, for the most part, want the same things. Uh, we want our kids to do well. We want the the world to be a better place. We want less fighting, less war, all those things. So great reminder. I love it. Well, thank you, Joseph, for coming on the show. It was great uh, hearing more of the neighbor story. And congrats on everything you guys have built. Appreciate you coming. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Awesome.